Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Ian Rowe. Ian is an author and educator and co-founder and CEO of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based international baccalaureate high schools opening in the Bronx in August of 2022. Mr. Rowe is also a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education, upward mobility, family formation, and adoption. Mr. Rowe is a social entrepreneur with more than 30 years of experience founding and leading organizations in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors that empower young people to affect positive change in their own lives. He is also the author of the recent book, Agency, which seeks to inspire young people to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover the pathway to power. In this episode, we discuss his origin story, the success sequence, being racialized in America, the phenomenon of acting white, and the difference between equity versus equal opportunity. We also learn about his new charter school network and discuss how to help disadvantaged kids and touch on the relationship between meta-narratives and self-agency. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Ian Rowe. Ian Rowe, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Hello, Angel and Melissa. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So we've been watching a bunch of your content and reading a bunch of your content in preparation for this. And I loved the video you did for Fair, uh, where you get into a little bit of your backstory. And, you yeah. know, uh, Melissa's an immigrant. I am a first-generation child of immigrants. And I think that there's something really unique in particular about that experience and that having that perspective. So I would love it if you would just tell our our audience a little bit more about your background in case they don't know you as well as they should and oh. uh, connect us to how that got you to where you are today. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on and and yeah, no our you know, getting to know everyone's origin story I do think is really important because you know, so much of my work is about this idea that you can't make assumptions about people based on superficial characteristics around their race or gender or any or any characteristic because we're all just these beautiful complex human beings um in my own situation like with many of us my parents are 
fundamentally anything that I've been able to, to accomplish in my life is because of my parents. And uh, they were born and raised in Jamaica, West Indies. Uh, they had a dream for what they wanted uh, in their life. My dad met my mom and they had this like, very romantic courtship where uh, he used to pick her up uh, on horseback for their dates. You know, they used to tell us these stories wow. of, you know, when they were in Jamaica, <laughs> when they had first met. And uh, my dad really loved math. And, um, and he felt he had reached his level. He, he, he felt he had reached his limit in, um, in Jamaica. And at the time, Jamaica was an English commonwealth. So he went to London to start studying. That's when he and my mom, they had been dating for a bit, and he, but he wanted to pursue this better life. And once he got to London, he said, you know, I, I need my buds. Um, that's what they called each other. And uh, he wrote to her parents for her hand in marriage. Um, and there was much consternation in the Sivrite household um, because, you know, I think she was 19 at the time. You know, what are you talking about? You're going to go, you know, you're going to go find your man. And yeah, she took a boat all by herself from England uh, and from, from Jamaica to England, you know, wow. at 19 years old to go find, you know, to, to, to marry her husband. And so they got married and they lived this amazing life in London. Yeah. You know, he studied engineering. My mom studied nursing. And, uh, and she was a nurse actually also back. Um, that's how they met because uh, he had worked. Um, they were on this plantation farm. It was just an amazing story. Anyway, they had me and my brother. Ultimately, they came to the United States and, you know, in pursuit of the American dream. And what's interesting, they came to the States in the mid-1960s. So in the, in the midst of a lot of racial turmoil, you know, they, they knew what they were walking into. Uh, it was a lot. Um, but they also knew the country was changing. You know, they knew that while they would very much likely face racial discrimination, they felt that their kids and they could have a real shot. My dad became one of the early black engineers at IBM. My mom started working for what was then Manufacturers Hanover Trust Bank, which probably none of your listeners even are familiar with, but it's what is now <laughs> essentially J.P. Morgan Chase because it went through lots of iterations. But, you know, we, we moved to Brooklyn um, and then we moved on up to Queens. And, uh, and it was actually, if, if, you, if you will let me, I can share an experience that happened that in many ways, I think, has helped shape my thinking even today. So we, mo we, moved, to Queen we moved to a small town called Laurelton, Queens, which at the time is predominantly, predominantly white, um, um, you know, Jewish, Italian community, but certainly community, but certainly it was becoming more racially diverse. And unfortunately, there were more and more uh, racial incidents that were happening in the community as well as in my junior high school. And so the school board decided to solve this problem. Let's just create a new junior high school. They created an annex in Rosedale, which was a more predominantly white part of town. And they said, that's how we're going to solve the problem. Because essentially what happened was all of the white parents in our junior high school took their kids out and put them in the annex leaving my junior high school as a virtually all black segregated school. And, and my parents have shared the story, you know, they came to this country to pursue the American dream. And the assumption was, you know, where the white kids go, that's where the better education will be. So they were going to take me out of the school as well. And, uh, and I write about this in my book agency, but the Sunday night before we were supposed to uh, do the transfer papers, I begged my parents, you know, we were in our living room and I, I, I said, I love my school. 
I, why does it have to be bad? Just because everyone that's left is going to be black. You know, I'll work hard. I love my teachers. And honestly, it was the first time I questioned my parents about anything, right? My parents would do anything for me and my brother. And I just, I just, something didn't feel right about this decision. And um, I mean, they ultimately relented and let me stay. And I'm honestly, I'm convinced all of my work is this idea that just because there's a certain complexion of a certain community, that shouldn't mean something about the quality or expectations of that community. And uh, so I stayed. And in many ways, I think that was my first experience with what I would never then called agency, but I would call it now because I felt I had really influenced a really huge decision in my life, in this case, supported by my parents. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to dig into that decision of, of questioning your parents, you know, just as an, <laughs> as an immigrant, exactly. as a child of immigrants, I totally understand the position <laughs> right. you were putting yourself in, first of all. But, but also, you know, their reasoning was fairly sound, especially at the time, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that school, that annex is probably going to get more resources. It's probably going to get more funding. Yeah. It's probably going to get yeah. the better teachers who want the higher pay. And, um, it did, and it did turn out, by the way, that my junior high school did become one of the most dangerous high school, uh, mm. dangerous schools in New York City. It was ultimately closed right. and reopened with multiple charter schools. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, they, it did turn out to be prescient, but at the, at that very moment, I wasn't thinking about anything other than what I thought was still possible in my school, you know? Yeah. But so, so you were kind of, you know, all of this is kind of circling around your book agency, which, which just came out May 16th. And as yeah. we understand is currently sold out on Amazon because it's that good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, thank and, you for that. But yeah, so, you know, you were taking it upon yourself to say, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make the most of it. But it's curious because, because your parents ended up being so prescient and the reasoning was so sound, like I can completely understand why they would push you to go in the other direction. Do you, do you ever think about what might've happened, that counterfactual of, you know, had you listened to your parents, what, what might've become of you? It's such a great question because I do think about that because in some ways, because I was the catalyst for essentially demanding my parents allow me to stay in my school, I just felt a much greater level of responsibility. You know, it was on me. Like I made a promise, not only to them, but to myself. Like, so if had I failed, had I not been successful, I would have really felt it was on me. So had I just gone along with my parents' decision to go to the other school in the annex, you know, who knows, maybe I'd be sitting right here. Maybe I'd, you know, maybe I'd be doing something far better, you know, (laughs) but I, I don't know. I, I felt that was an epiphany moment. And I think at some point, everyone has to feel this moment that you realize that you actually have the ability to influence your own destiny, you know, that you can be an architect of your own future. And that doesn't, isn't necessarily a guarantee that it's going to be successful. But so much of my work in schooling is helping young people find that moment for themselves when they know that they're not just a passive player, you know, that they're not just a victim or reliant or someone else to make a decision for them. So I don't know. I, I, think, I think I probably would have been, you know, 
uh, a kid going to junior high school then going to high school and hopefully you know hopefully again i had strong parents right so that always would have been a support for me but i know what i did have was that wow i'm on the hook here <laughs> you know i'm i have put myself in a position where i asked my parents to do something that they did not want to do this you know they 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 took a leap of faith because they thought they had the plan laid out for their kids and this wasn't part of that not when the school board made that decision and frankly I i'm really thankful i'm i'm really thankful thankful that they did that that that's i think you're actually hitting on something that is very common for a lot of immigrant kids it's it's responsibility because you do feel responsible you have skin in the game there's this entire weight of expectation kind of put on your shoulders foisted upon you you know if we are to make it in this country it's because of education it's it's because you're going to make it we we didn't get an education you know the, the parents usually are right. taking lower income jobs that are you know like running laundromats running restaurants and things like that and and so they send their kids they kind of you know they delay gratification they save money they send their kids in and the weight of that responsibility to make sure that you know you're you're successful for your family i think and and for you is is I I think that's kind of one of the big drivers of of success, which you've actually worked on a lot. I think you call it the success sequence. Um, oh yeah, sure. I mean, what you're saying is very yeah. Talk about that a little. Sure. I mean, what you're saying is very astute about this idea that um, you know it's education, usually strong family. Um, one of the challenges, though, when we talk about it in sort of um, the immigrant story, one of the, one of the, sometimes the challenge we fall into is that there then becomes this sort of clash between, you know, Caribbean Americans or, or, or immigrants from West Africa or, you know, from Nigeria, like these countries where you look at the data and you see that from an economic perspective, there's actually a pretty sizable representation of black immigrants in high income levels, far superseding mm -hmm. that of white Americans. And then there becomes this kind of competition between like Caribbean Americans and native born, for example, African Americans. And, and that's something I think we should all be sensitive to of just the, the, the things that you just described, you know, the focus on education, the sort of stick to itiveness, you know, you're going to make it. Those are ways of being, belief systems, habits of mind that are accessible to everyone you know that and yes it may be that immigrants who are coming here first generation in particular have more kind of a hunger because they're directly coming here as opposed to people who may have been here for hundreds of years where may maybe it's more difficult but i try to break through though because sometimes there's a there's like an inherent competition like and and i don't think there has to be i don't think there has to be um, and I, you weren't saying that, but I, but sometimes I think when people hear, oh, that's, you're an immigrant. So therefore, you know, you're different. You know, my dad always used to say when he, when he grew up in Jamaica, in Jamaica, he was a man. I was a man. And actually he would say he was, a, he was a man, but you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't until he came to the United States that he realized that he was told that he's a black man, you know? It's very interesting the the, yep. the mindset that can exist here 
versus a country that maybe have a different history or that your skin color is not the most defining characteristic about you. Um, anyway, sorry for that detour, but I, I just thought it might be <laughs> interesting to mention because I, the success at sequence actually is a little bit wrapped up in this in that I think there's a lot of interest in how do we help people from any community that has been impoverished for some period of time, right? That they've been disenfranchised. And it's not just the black community, there are other communities. And so if you look at a lot of, a lot of social science research, there's a lot of research on failure, right? Why is it that there's such entrenched poverty? Why is it that there's low education in certain communities? So we study failure ad infinitum. Years ago, I became interested in understanding more of success for people who move from one station to another in terms of upward mobility, what typically, you know, explains that? Like, you know, is it, you know, like, for example, there are millions of black lawyers, engineers, scientists, philosophers, elected officials. Are they all just random? You know, we almost never hear, you know, you know there are certain communities you're almost always talking about the pathologies and not the successes. And, are, you know, and so the success sequence is data that says, if you finish just your high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you get married, I'm sorry, if you have children and get, but get married first, 97% of millennials who pursue that series of decisions avoid poverty. And the vast majority end up in the middle class or beyond. But that's just amazing information. And it, it helps. And that goes across race. That's black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Um, and, and by the way, many immigrants who come to this country follow that set of, of um, decisions. So it's, it's not surprising. Like, for example, if you look at um, if we're in the Asian community, following of the success sequence, very, very high um, allegiance to those sets of behaviors. So I believe communities, young people should be learn about that behavior, not as a dictate to say, you must do this, but there are going to be a series of decisions in your control in just a few years around your education, around your work, timing of family formation, relationships that you enter. And you should just know that there are different rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. I mean, the reason I run schools, I want young people to know that they can do hard things and that they're, they are the architects of their life. And, but there are certain decisions that you should know that can either dramatically improve your likelihood of a fulfilling life or others that won't. And so that's what the success sequence is kind of all about. I'd love to dig into this a little bit more. You know, you mentioned your father, your father had the experience of considering himself a man or a man <laughs> and then arriving in America and realizing, oh, I, I'm a black man, apparently. Apparently, right? exactly. Uh, Melissa, Melissa, uh, if I remember correctly, you had a similar experience of suddenly you're Asian. Like, what is that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You show up in America, suddenly you're Asian. Right. Especially given that Asian is this incredible continent right. of incredible diversity. Right. Exactly. exactly. It's huge. <laughs> it's like, but no, you're all, you're all in that. Asian Monolithic. Box. No. 
Yeah, and I I grew up thinking I was Hispanic, but apparently uh, the clung, the conglomeration of my thoughts and opinions and tastes make me white. Oh, oh, you are you are you white adjacent? Are you white adjacent? Yeah, I'm, okay. I have multiracial whiteness. I'm afflicted. Um, <laughs> um, what do you think that but, does? What do you think that does so, to people when they when they when they're boxed in that way? I mean, I would, in my experience, it was it was pretty. It had it had two effects. You know, the 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 kind of proximate effect was it made growing up harder, right? It made it mm. made finding myself a much more difficult process in the middle of all that you know, adolescence and, you know, high school sucks, middle school sucks. It all sucks. Right. (laughs) Right. But it made it worse because I couldn't hide or I couldn't, I couldn't just kind of lose myself in those kind of preordained groups. Right. Because I didn't fit in and I was rejected from them. But the ultimate cause was that I learned to be myself much more quickly, much more, much sooner than many of my peers. So I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit ahead in that way, whereas I was behind on everything else. So, you know, ultimately I would say it worked out great, but it's the process definitely sucked and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think those dynamics are, are so complex and it's so interesting. You know, you mentioned the thing of your parents being professionals, right? So I, let me back up actually. So the traditional sort of, narrative that we know of, right, is, you know, immigrants come to America, they take, you know, kind of low-wage jobs, as Melissa was describing, right, and they have, they have kids and they put their kids through school and the, the idea is that their kids will be probably the first to graduate high school, college, and become professionals and they will be the first real step towards prosperity. Mm-hmm. Right. Their, their parents, their immigrant parents are the ones who kind of took the hit and move forward in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I had different experiences, though. Right. So you as an immigrant, but me being born here, our parents are professionals. My, both of my parents went to college. Both my parents went beyond college. Right. My father became an oral surgeon in the Dominican Republic before coming here. Mm. And my mother was was, you know. She finished college here, but she was already kind of, you know, yep. a, a working professional. Yep. And she now has a master's degree in, in bilingual education, right? And both your parents are incredibly super accomplished, right? So one of them is an engineer. What was your mother? I don't know. So my, my mom worked in securities, um, um, securities analyst. Again, what was then Manufacturers Hanover, it ultimately became Chemical Bank and, ah, then, right. and then JP Morgan Chase. But no, no, you're right. I mean, right. Like, yeah, right. our, our yeah. You know, they had a hard scrap of life in London, you know, when they were first mm-hmm. starting off. But yeah, you're right. It's the, 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 um, and, and even again, the, like this, the immigrant story, like, but, but at foundation, what you're saying is right. That there's starts with this belief that even if I, as immigrants, we didn't go to school, we didn't get all these, you know, we're now in a country where you can get it. And right. that sense of possibility. This idea that you live in a good, even if flawed, country still has opportunity. That's why I run schools. That's why I've written my book, Agency. Like, how do we have more and more young people start to realize what is actually within their grasp, even if there are lots of people who are trying to push a narrative that says you don't have success within your grasp? Um, Ian, I, I was kind of thinking about your, your question earlier 
I, you know, about, about what this kind of accusations of white adjacency actually does to a person. I think, I think this accusation is actually a way to police outgroup nonconformity, to punish mm. somebody for that. Mm. And in a way, it's kind of like, I think Barack Obama has talked about this before, about how if, if, if he was doing well in school, there were accusations of him acting white. You know, there was this tall poppy yes. syndrome. Yes. And, and it's an attempt to, to label sets of behaviors as white so as to, to prevent other people from, from um, associating themselves with it. And, and I think that's very pernicious. Yes. Mm. And I mean, if you think about a lot of, for whatever reason, I don't know how this mimetic uh, behavior spread, but many Asian parents love to send their kids for, uh, you know, classical music. And we all do like piano, violin, whatever it is. And um, imagine that, that there's, that's acting white. You're, you're, you know, you're studying Bach and, uh, and, and Mozart and Haydn. And, and I think right. it's an attempt to kind of, um, to, to police behavior, to, to categorize people in a way that's actually very arbitrary and, and, and harmful. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I do it's think that, that it's actually very, it is essentializing. Yeah. It's exactly I call that. it, I call it the one thought rule. Mm. It's suddenly, you know, if you read books, you're white. Like that's, that was my experience. And yeah, it's. That's terrible. I, I don't it's know just, how intentional it is. I think, I think it just kind of happens through osmosis because none of the people who called me that were trying to kind of keep me out or were trying to, you know, influence my behavior. They just, it's just something they thought of as a given. It was like, oh, that's, right. that's, that's so white. Like, you know, yeah. my dad, my right. dad, actually, we talked about this years ago where when he first came to this country, it was just weird for him that anything that was good, like being a good father, doing well in education, mm. just being a good provider, those were considered white. And what was considered being authentically black was not doing well in school or somehow being involved yeah. in the criminal justice system. It was just like this weird, and he, 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 I remember him remarking on it, just like this weird psychology of like, why is, why is that in order for me to be authentically black, means I need to be like wearing different clothes or, you know, the saggy pants and all this kind of stuff. And he just rejected that. <laughs> and it is, it is also weird that it also is this insidious thing where whiteness becomes the standard of excellence, mm -hmm. right? And it's just, yeah. so in education, this really plays out in what's called like the racial achievement gap. So if you look at most education reform organizations, their whole thing is we need to close the gap between black and white students or Hispanic and white students. And over time, you start to get the impression, wow, I guess white students must be doing really great because we're always trying to close the gap with them. And yet in the entire history of what's called the nation's report card, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, there has never been a situation we're even close to 45% of white students are reading at grade level. So even if you were able to close the racial achievement gap, all you'd be accomplishing is universal mediocrity, right? And so, <laughs> wow. right? And so, so we, so we got to break this essentialism where all we're looking at is race as the defining characteristic, because it's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that a majority of white students are not reading at grade level, right? Maybe there are other mm -hmm. factors like mm -hmm. 
strong, stable families, access to school choice, rigorous curricula in schools. And so once you take this layer off and take a a more pro-human approach to a whole set of issues, you start treating people as individuals with individual characteristics. And then you start, it's it's almost like the blinders are taken off. Because if you feel like everything is based on one, like when you're your one thought rule, if you think that everything is based on one singular factor, in this case, race, then it clouds your thinking. Then you think, oh, well, if there's a racial achievement gap, Mm -hmm. that must be due to racism. And therefore, the solution set must also be linked to race. So that's why you see, you know, so many, like suddenly, well, we got to have anti-bias training. You know, we got to drive the racism out of all these white teachers who, who must be the culprit. Anyway, all this is to say, all of this robs young people of agency. Because when we trap people into beliefs that they are only defined by these singular characteristics, you've taken away my ability to define myself based on all my characteristics. You ever notice also that they won't compare, say, the, the white and, say, you know, Asian of, or of Indian course. reading gap, like the South Asian <laughs> reading gap or something? Yes. They, they never talk about that gap, but it, it does exist. <laughs> it does exist. Yeah. And, you know, but even, and, and you know, I, I mean, this highlights the point because even within the Asian community, like not every Asian student is knocking Correct. out of the park, right? And so there just becomes this false um, mm-hmm. identifier where we're just, we're just trafficking in these identity groupings and assumptions. And ultimately that hurts children, that hurts the ability for us to treat each person as an individual, with individual dignity, respect with weaknesses, with strengths, with areas of growth. Again, this is especially true in education. You cannot box kids in simply because of a superficial characteristic. Right. That, that actually gets us to your recent piece on, in the New York Post, where you talk a little bit about this and you know the idea of lowering standards in order to meet kind of superficial quotas mm. or, or to help a certain group of kids along because they're struggling for whatever reason. And because it's seen through the lens of race, the prescriptions are often incredibly harmful and very superficial. Yeah. So I'm I'm reminded of, of this cartoon, you know, it's, it's a line of, of animals. One of them is, is a, a monkey. Then there's an elephant, there's a fish in a bowl, there's a bird. And then there's a, there's a person sitting in front of them. And he says, all right, in order to ensure fairness, you're going to take the same test, climb this tree. Right. And, and the, uh, the idea is this is, this is why, uh, you know, standardized testing is, mm-hmm. is wrong, right? This is the way it was presented when I saw the cartoon. It was like, this is the problem with racism and standardized testing, right? And really, really what's going on there is essentialism, right? There's yeah. like, oh, there's only one type of animal that climbs trees and all the other animals do different things. They don't do the climbing trees thing. And it just turns out that climbing trees is taking standardized tests, <laughs> right. right? There's a lot of assumptions in yep. there that are, yep. that are really pernicious. Yep. Curious, you know, tell us a little bit about the piece you wrote and how you feel about the, you know, the lowering of standards and why, why it's the wrong approach. Yeah. Well, in, in this piece I wrote uh, for the post, um, it, it's really diving into this topic of equity and in particularly racial equity, where 
there just seems to be an obsession that, you know, if there's a difference in outcomes, again, let's, let's take reading. If, if there's a difference in outcomes between races, you know, if 45% of white kids are reading at grade level, but 23% of black kids are reading at grade level, then that's must be due to racism. Like Abraham Kendi says, if I see racial, if I see a racial gap, I see racial discrimination and the end of story, no other explanation. And so then mm-hmm. the solution means we need equity. We need equal outcomes. And the thing is, that's just not how the world works. You know, that we are all ultimately individuals. The, what we have to be able to do is create a world of equal access, equal opportunity. So in, in that world, if I'm a teacher in a classroom with 25 kids, that means I've got 25 human beings with 25 learning styles, 25 different family situations, 25 different everythings, right? Maybe some things in common, but the point is you just can't make assumptions. And so the term we use in education is differentiated supports, meaning that I may be a family, that I may be an um, English language learner, I'm, you know, we were recent immigrants and we're learning a language, or I might be someone really good in math. And so the idea is that you cater the kinds of supports for each student to bring you all to a level playing field, right? You can't guarantee that every kid is going to score X, Y, Z on a particular exam or have a certain outcome. But what you can do is ensure that every kid has an equal shot. That's what I was writing about. Because there is a push right now for equity, which, you know, or certain anti-racist doctrine which ironically oftentimes turns out to be racist unto itself. I mean, in Evanston, Illinois, there is a superintendent during the height of COVID who said for equity, I'm going to reopen schools, you know, because, you know, we needed kids to be back in school. But he said, I'm only going to do it for the the kids of color, but all the white kids stay home. Like, wait, what? (laughs) Right? I mean, and or or in Oregon, Oregon, the governor Mm. passed a law that's, you know, because they were trying to, how do we help our black kids? How do we help our, uh, you know, how do we tell our, how do we help our quote unquote Latinx um, kids? So they said, let's <laughs> remove the requirement to demonstrate proficiency in reading oh, yeah. and math to graduate from high school with the rationale being, this is how we help our kids of color. Just think about that for a second. When, once you start, whether it's well-intentioned or not, it's just wrong. When you start removing or, or lowering standards as the mechanism by which now this is how our, you know, our disadvantaged kids are going to compete, what you're actually doing is that you're robbing young people of the dignity to achieve excellence. That's, right. that's, you can't take that away from a person. The whole idea is that I want to prove to the world that I can compete. If you remove the standards, you remove the bar of excellence, then then suddenly everyone has a self-doubt over what you've actually been able to accomplish. The ironic thing about standardized tests and these other things, and I'm and you know, there are certainly issues, but the ir- irony is that they were created to create an objective right. measure because there were subjective um, mechanisms in place for college admissions. I mean, you look at the history, like Harvard, like Jewish students right. being excluded, Asian students. 
And so these, these objective assessments were created so that people could operate to know that, look, I, I'm, you, you've set a bar, I can achieve it, regardless of race, class, gender, whatever. Mm-hmm. So Ian, you, you don't actually just talk the talk. I feel like you actually walk the walk. You have spent, what, a decade now, at yes. least, working in schools, yes. running charter schools. Yes. And I think this fall, you are actually opening a, a network of charter schools yep. in the Bronx. Yes. So can you, can you kind of walk us through how you're, because I think your vision, as you quite easily laid out earlier, was, was about equal access to opportunity. Yeah. So can you kind of lay out for us what, what that looks like in your schools? Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for um, asking that. Cause I, I feel very much that it's really important that all of us, we talk, you know, we talk about institutions and the values we stand for, but it's also really important to put those ideas into action, right? Like, what does it mean to have a school that has a pro-human approach, right? So for the last 10 years, yes, I ran a network of public charter schools in the South Bronx, Lower East Side. They were elementary and middle schools, all girls and all boys schools. And we had about 2,000 students in our schools and about 5,000 families on the wait list, right? Desperate for their kids to get a great education. And, but in running that network, it wasn't enough just to stop at eighth grade. It became quite clear that, you know, especially in places like the Bronx, although frankly, throughout the country, there just aren't enough high quality high schools. So we're launching Vertex Partnership Academies which is grounded in the ideas of quality of opportunity, individual dignity, our common humanity. You know, you won't hear a lot about, you know, quote unquote equity, the way that it's been talked about, where suddenly everyone is lumped into identity groups before we even know your first name, you know, before suddenly we're boxing you in. And this is about and, and, you know, it's, all, it's also grounded in the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance, because these are, these are universal values. These are, these are universal ways of being that have, te- you know, stood the test of time of these having these characteristics with courage being the most important. So just from a brass tacks perspective, it's going to be a character-based international baccalaureate high school. So it's one of the most rigorous curricula in the world. We're going to have something called the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, where you can take a more traditional college or university pathway, or you can have an International Baccalaureate Careers Pathway, where at the end of 10th grade, you can choose, well, I want to go into computer science or architecture or something in media or healthcare. Like we're in um, discussions right now with the Mayo Clinic about uh, creating a course of study in phlebotomy. So imagine at the end of high school, you could graduate with an industry credential with labor market value. So if you wanted to get a job as a phlebotomist, that's something you could do, right? That's how you start to build agency in young people. Create more pathways so that you can be the architect of your own life, right? That you can be College is great, but it's not necessarily the only pathway for everyone, or it's not necessarily the thing that you have to do right out of high school. So, so rather than just talk about these things, and I think it's important to, you know, have research and policy and podcasts to, 
to talk about these things because that affects the general narrative. And we actually have to build new institutions that are doing the things that we're talking about, right? Because I think people just need more proof points to say, no, 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 it is possible to run a school with a pro-human approach. You know, I, you know so that's why I can say I, I'm against racism, but I'm not an anti-racist in the way that people seem to be um, using that terminology. And let me show you what we stand for versus what we are fighting against. Yeah, you're preempting our final question. But uh, <laughs> before we get to that, um, we still have some time. So I would love to dig into this stuff with you because, you know, this sounds fantastic. This sounds like exactly the kind of thing that I've been thinking for so long is so needed. It's just give people more avenues towards success. Find the way to to kind of get them on the right track, right? Not Not every... Not everyone is perfectly suited to the one track that we all kind of just understand is is the way forward, right? People are different and they have different kind of characters and tendencies and talents and skills, and there's just different ways to harness those. So I love this idea of of widening that that window for people and giving people more options to get them somewhere. But I, you know, and this this is, you know, sort of outside the realm of your responsibility really given you know you're focusing on the school aspect of it but of course society's complex and the nature of the problem is complex right so there are kids who would benefit from going to this school uh, or one of these schools but maybe their their life circumstances are such that they might have a hard time getting there they might have a hard time getting there on time they might have a hard time um you know, finishing homework or doing homework. They might have a hard time focusing because they had only one meal, right? They might have, they might have stuff going on at home or stuff going on in their neighborhoods that precludes them from yeah. putting the energy and focus that's required, yeah. right? And of course, like I said, you know, this is outside of your purview, but it's definitely going to make, it's definitely going to have an effect on what you're trying to do in your little avenue here. So I'm curious what you think about that and what we can do about that. Well, it's very interesting you say that. So let's take what you just said. So you're right. I mean, there's certain realities that every kid, well, not every kid, but a lot of kids, you know, maybe they can't do their homework because they're in a in a chaotic environment or they you mm-hmm. know didn't get a full meal, and those are hard realities. But the question is, what do we do? What do we as leaders do? Do we succumb and say, oh my gosh, your situation is so terrible that right. we can't expect anything of you? Or do we say, well, you know what? Here are the pathways, even given your situation. So let's, so let's take your specific example. San Diego Unified School uh-huh. District. Uh, I think this was in the summer of 2020. They did an analysis and they discovered that I think they discovered that um, 20% of black students had received either a D or an F grade, right? So it was a failing grade. And then they were able to discover that, but only 7% of white students received a D or an F grade. And they said, well, that 13 percentage point difference in failure rates, that is proof of systemic racism. And so therefore, we're going to become an anti-racist school district. 
And rather than do the analysis to say, wait a minute, why didn't, so what was going on with the 80% of black students that passed or the 93% of white students that passed or the 94% of Asian students that passed, you know, what was going on with them? Were they, they were they um, had more tutoring hours? Were they doing study sessions? Like what explained success? They said, no, 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 no. You know what? We think these black kids, they can't get their homework done on time. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to remove that requirement for all 110,000 kids in the San Diego Unified School System. That a, a teacher can no longer penalize kids for not getting their homework in on time. To me, wait, was it all the quote unquote black kids or was it all kids? No, no, they, they, kids. they, they yeah. lowered the standard for everybody. Oh, well, at least they did that. That's... <laughs> 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 at least no. it wasn't specific. To the... <laughs> no, at it's least they bad. didn't just say, oh, yeah. yeah okay. Oh, I'll... no, no, it is bad. It is bad. But at the very least, they didn't just say, you know, well, black kids, whenever you get a chance, but everybody else. That, that's true. Uh, that's Friday. True. Yeah, but you know what? But you know what? All 110,000 kids show up in college or for their job. And they say, "Oh yeah, right. boss, I'll get I'll I'll get you that assignment when I get to it. Let's see <laughs> let's see how long, you know." But that right. So the, so this is actually a real thing. It's what do you mm -hmm. do with kids who are coming from disadvantaged situations? Do you say let's lower the expectations like the Oregon governor did? Well, no, no, okay, fine. You don't need to demonstrate proficiency in reading and math. No, 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 no. We have to raise expectations. But then what are the differentiated supports so that students in situations like that can be in environments where they have the kinds of people and resources that can make them be able to compete on an equal playing field? And that's why I run schools. Believe me, I have a lot of kids mm -hmm. who are in, in the situations that you described. The worst thing that I could do for all of them is to start saying, um, yeah, you know, you're right. This is it really sucks. It sucks to be you. You know, and and um, and I'm not going to hold you accountable. I just, you know, our motto: there are no victims here. There are only individuals that have mm -hmm. the capacity to ultimately lead a self-determined life, who can become agents of your own uplift. There are other kids that have just been like you, and here how here's how they've done it. That's why information like the success sequence is so mm -hmm. important. And I just feel like their kids are sometimes caught up in this narrative of everything that you can't do. And I want to be running institutions that tell you, here's everything you can do, and here are the supports that we're going to provide to help you to do this. In the school system, in the school district, in District 8 in the South Bronx, where you know we have 5,000 kids on the wait list for our schools, in 2015, of the 2,000 ninth graders that started in traditional high schools, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and dropped out somewhere along the way, or they did get their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without needing remediation if they were to go to college. In that district, there's a cap on charter schools in New York City. So if you had an idea to actually start a new school, you couldn't do it, right? So there are so that's what we need to do. We need to 
make sure that those opportunities do exist for students who are in disadvantaged situations. But once those schools are open, we can't, we can't take the, I mean, I wouldn't say it too harshly, but you can't take the pressure off in the sense of the one thing that every young person has is their ability to work hard, to, you know, demonstrate exemplary character and to reach a level of excellence. You can't rob that from young people. That's doing the absolute worst thing to their psyche and their ability to say, I earn this. You know, I can do hard things. Don't rob my ability to do that. Yeah. Mm. I think it was Plato who said that knowledge without virtue is, is, uh, is useless. Um, and I think that's kind of uh, something that just kind of putting kids through the gauntlet itself, the process shapes them in ways that it's beyond just knowledge, right? It's, it's shaping character. Well, it's a, it, you, you, you develop it, what some, some people call the overcomer's mindset, you know, that mm. life is not fair. And by the way, this doesn't only apply to disadvantaged kids. There are a lot of wealthy kids who are feeling lost, isolated, all sorts of challenges. Yeah. They need help too. There are no victims here though. We got it. We, we, we have to not have kids internalize this idea that their life is somehow now dependent on someone else to come to their rescue. Right. Well, you said there there are two narratives, right? Mm -hmm. That, that sometimes we kind of like focus on, you you call it the the victim narrative and the other one is, blame the system. system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could you kind of, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I, and I go into this in more detail in my book, agency, where I do feel that Young people are trapped in these, these two, what I call meta narratives that are impeding their ability to see the life of their own choosing. And the first meta narrative I call blame the system and the other I call blame the victim. In the blame the system meta narrative, that's basically the idea. If you're not achieving the American dream, America itself is the problem. Like America is an oppressive nation, like based on your race, your gender, some other characteristic. It's like America has these systems that are rigged against you. There's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so discriminatory, so oppressive, so rigged against you, that the only way that you can be successful is if there's a massive government intervention or massive social transformation, but you as an individual, you are powerless because of these systems that are, those have to be changed first before we can make any kind of real progress. But on the other side, if, um, if you're not successful, it's not America, it's a problem. America's great, you're the problem, right? You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're the architect of your own failure. You are responsible for your inability to be successful. And the problem with that narrative is that it completely ignores the fact that, you know, if you don't, if you're a young person, if you don't have access to a strong family or a strong faith committee, community or have access, had access to great schools, it's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? And so I feel these two meta narratives add up to a singular lie. And I, I've been doing a, a bunch of college tours and I, would, I, I set up this meta narrative and this one law student stood up in an amphitheater and he said to me, well, if I can't blame the victim and I can't blame the system, 
then who could I blame? And it was just this, you know, and it was just this <laughs> interesting question because for him, here's this young person at law school, he needs a culprit, right? He needs to know the explanation for why America is wrong, as opposed to what are the institutions that have helped make America work for so long for some segment of people. Like, and so that's why I feel like there has to be a new framework. We have to give young people something to say yes to, not just constantly looking for what is wrong with this country. And so I have created this framework, which I, I define as agency, which I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So think of agency as like a vector where if you have free will, right? If you have, if as a human being, plus is what's going to help you become a morally discerning person? How are you going to know right from wrong? So if agency is a vector like velocity, velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction, direction. right? So where does the ability to become a, mor- a morally discerning person come from? And that's where this free framework, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, that's the framework. I, and I go into more detail in my book, Agency, where family is the first foundational institution. And it's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family that you form, right? So that's why data around the success Mm -hmm. sequence is so important because young people need to know about what are the likely rewards or consequences, not only in your own life, but in the generation that follows you based on when you start to create your own family. The R is about religion, the power of a personal faith commitment. If you look at the levels of depression, isolation, loneliness, particularly in this generation, you see that, and you also see simultaneously a reduction in religiosity, you see that young people are missing out on what the power of a faith commitment could mean within their own lives. And so in the book, I talk about ways to cultivate that. E for education, this whole idea of having school choice and having a strong opportunity to be in an educational environment that can really enhance your learning. And so if you got, if you create a strong family, strong faith commitment, have strong educational opportunity, almost all of those put you in a position for the last E, which is entrepreneurship, where this, you know, and that includes work, obviously, but it's also, you want to lean into life because you know you have the supports of a strong education, strong faith commitment, strong family, where you can now go out into the world. So many young people are you know, they're on their social media, they're watching pornography, like they're not engaging. No, it's really interesting. If you look, just look at the data about how young people are spending their time. And so the whole last E is about this idea of developing an entrepreneurial mindset about your own life, about ownership. Even in the high school that we're launching at Vertex Partnership Academies, every ninth grader is going to have a portfolio of 10 S&P 500 SOTs through a partnership, through the Charles Schwab, um, they've, they've got something called fractional shares, where for $5, you can own mm-hmm. a piece of Apple or Walmart or Google. And so every kid, so I'm holding up my iPhone here, so they're not just an owner, I'm sorry, they're not just a consumer, but they can be an owner of Apple. What does that mean? Like There was someone who had an idea wow. years ago that now it's paying dividends and pushing out earnings. Anyway, it's one of the ways that we're trying to instill this idea 
that you can be the owner of your own destiny in a lot of different ways. And so free mm -hmm. is my alternative. Like agency is this overriding strong idea with family, religion, education, entrepreneurship become your vehicles, the pillars that you can embrace to break through these debilitating narratives of blame the system and blame the victim. So Ian, I want to challenge you a little bit. And it's not on the free will thing. I, I do have quibbles <laughs> there, but it's more philosophical and, and semantic. We don't need to get into it. I do believe we have what I would call kind of, quote unquote, local agency, uh, which, is, which is enough for what you're talking about. But I'm, I'm picturing myself in ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And I'm picturing someone like you coming up to me and telling me, hey, uh, we're going to give you some stocks. We're going <laughs> to give you some Apple stock. And I can, I can see myself thinking that is the last, like I just see some dude in a business suit and it's, it's the antithesis of what I want to be or mm -hmm. see anywhere near me, right? I'm an artist. I want to be creative. Yep. I want you to leave me alone, yep. right? And the religion thing, I mean, I don't know how broad you get with that, right? But I definitely have problems with that. Uh, in ninth grade, I am just militantly anti-religion. Why? And I don't want to wow. hear that. Why? It's just so interesting. Right. Wow. Why? Why? Why are you so militantly? Well, I think. Sounds like you've been affected think, by a larger uh, narrative already. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's what I'm mm -hmm. getting at is, mm -hmm. is, you know, when you, when you reach a kid with your four point plan, they're going, they may be in a position like the position I yeah. was in. Right. So how do you respond yeah. to that kind right. of push? So maybe we'll end with a little story because as we were designing Vertex Partnership Academies, this new high school, I visited several great high schools across the country, one of which was in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And I visited a ninth grade class. And uh, this was in a, um, you know, a very high low income district. And so I say to these ninth graders that, you know, we're designing this high school. Um, and one of the big things we want to be able to talk about is upward mobility and, you know, the, you know, how you, how you put yourself in a position to lead a successful life. And I said, if you knew there were a certain set of decisions in your control that when young people like you have followed them, 97% of the people that did it avoided poverty. And I said, if you knew that that existed, would you want to know more about those series of decisions? And every one of them said, yeah, why, why wouldn't we? Well, why wouldn't we? And then I said, well, you know, there's some people who think that you don't want, you shouldn't know that. Like maybe you're already made decisions about how you're going to be successful and you don't want to hear it. And you might be insulted or pissed off or who knows. Like there, there are people that tell me I shouldn't tell you. Who am I to impose this idea? Because you got it already figured out. And they looked at me like I had a third eye on my head, right? And it was just so interesting. <laughs> and, then, and then in that case, I proceeded to have a discussion about the success sequence. And it wasn't in the, you must do this. It wasn't like prescriptive. It was just saying, look, there's data that says this series of decisions, like nothing's 100%, but 97% of the people have followed it, avoided poverty. These people who made decisions in a different order you know, these were the percentages, and by the way, much higher uh, entry into poverty, right? And what I found most interesting at the end of the discussion was not that I think I had necessarily converted young people to think a certain way, 
But I felt that they felt that someone was treating them as a future decision maker in their own life. And that is what I think that's the best we can do because nothing is guaranteed for everyone. But if I can sit down with you and explain whether it be the success sequence or the value of having a personal faith commitment, I mean, you're right. At the end of the day, you're going to decide whether or not you want to pursue a personal faith commitment in your own life as possible. I just think it's important that as as leaders, as 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 holders of collective wisdom, we share what we know. We we preach what we have practiced in our own lives, or we preach what humanity has practiced, or what we've learned about what are the common elements of human flourishing, and don't deprive mm-hmm. young people of that very information. And yes, yeah, so that's what I would say. I mean, this group of ninth graders. They're like, who are you? Who yeah. are you to tell me that you're not going to tell me something that um, could actually be beneficial to my life? Let me decide. Let me decide. And that, I think, I want to put every young person in a position where they can say, I'm going to decide with the best information, because that's what agency ultimately is about. Funnily enough, if you had a third eye, I would have been much more <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I, I hear think you. to reach kids like, I think to reach kids like Angel, you know, the, the disagreeable contrarian type yes, kids, yes. you just got to market that as forbidden knowledge. You just got to tell them, mm, it's, you're not supposed to know this. It's so you know? true. And, and I think Melissa, then they respond. It. It's so true. That's it. Yeah, that would have worked. That's, <laughs> or, totally or, but worked. that's kind of what I did, right? I yeah. said, if you knew, and then, well, there are people who didn't. You know, because I used to work at MTV years ago and we ran the truth campaign. I don't know if you remember that campaign. It was about anti-smoking. That's a relic. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. Wow. A long time ago. But the, one of the reasons that campaign was so <laughs> successful was that the way we framed it was that, you know, we, we showed these boardrooms of, you know, like all these, you know, men smoking. And they, they got all this yeah. research about the harmful impacts of smoking. But the way we framed it is that they're trying to keep this information from you you know, as a young person. And that's, and it was one of the reasons yeah. that it, it, I think gained such traction. It's like, wait a minute, they're trying to pull one over on us. And so I kind of use that similarly, right. even in this conversation with the ninth graders of there's information in the world that could make your life better, or at least that you can choose in your decision-making structure. And they wanted to know it. And, and for me, there are a lot of gatekeepers out there that seem to represent the interests of the quote unquote disadvantaged and they don't, they don't. And mm. let the people themselves decide what agency means in their own life. That's amazing. That's good. I love that. That would have yeah. worked. That would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Melissa, and Melissa nailed yes. it. I, I mean, yeah. I was, I was very transparent. Yes. Melissa totally yes. nailed it. That would have gotten, it's like, listen, man, they don't want you to know that, that totally would have worked. <laughs> Rebellious, yes, so rebellious. Yes. Ian, it, it, it is in all of our interest to, to see uh, you, your ideas and your projects succeed. I mean, at a time when, you know, what, I don't know, majority of kids want to just grow up to be TikTok influencers. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. you're, you're empowering them, <laughs> I think, in a way through education that I think is, is just important for all our futures. Yeah. Um, so I think- But hey, gonna, that's entrepreneurship. Gonna, that's entrepreneurship, yeah. <laughs> that is. No? Yeah, you're, 
Walk, that's entrepreneurship. As long as it's one of multiple I mean, there options. There people with penthouses that's right true, now. That's true. That's true. But we can't make the <laughs> exceptions seem like the only pathway. So let's just make sure that you truly have agency. Right. You know what's out, you know, yeah. I mean, look, but not everyone can be Michael Jordan, right? And um, we just, you know, it's, it's ultimately about having a life of your own choosing. And there are typically ingredients that have contributed to that for most people. And I want to bring that to everyone so that this idea of agency can be real and that you don't feel that you're just Mm. a victim of circumstance because that doesn't help anybody. Okay, Ian, I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, We always ask every guest uh, the same question at the end. Um, So our focus at FAIR uh, is to use pro-human alternatives um, in, in approaching some of these issues. And the question is, what um, what does pro-human actually mean to you and how can everyday people, you know, aspire to to be more pro-human? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's so core. I mean, pro-human, to me, it just means individual dignity and our common humanity, that someone's not special or has special rights because they're black or they're gay or they're trans or whatever, you know, whatever characteristic that suddenly people are just elevating to the singular most important thing about you. The singular most important thing about you is that you're human, that you're a person, that you're a being. And as, and as such, you're worthy of love and respect and dignity. And I think the more and more we treat each person as a true human being, we recognize that we have a lot more in common based on our humanity than necessarily any of these artificial characteristics. So, and I want to run schools that way. I want to, I want people to, um, I want kids to be able to love one another and not put these false, you know, blockades between us because, oh, you're X. And, and because you're X, that means I know Y about you. It's like, "Mm, no, 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 you don't. Let's talk. And then we can really discover each other as individuals and human beings. Beautiful. Ian Rowe, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.